Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. I encourage any consumer of any good to imagine what it is to make it and who is making it, the people behind these things, the faces that go into this process. And I think that human nature is overwhelmingly positive. We want positive outcomes for ourselves and for others. And we all wake up in the morning and go to work wanting to do our best. Just know that the person at the other end is hoping for a positive outcome. If we engage each other in a way that is kind and understanding and gives people space to respond in a productive way, we should try and take that path as much as possible. We're all doing our best here. We all want it to be better. And sometimes a bit of patience goes a long way. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. It's no secret that the vinyl pressing industry has faced a surge in demand over the last 18 months. The British phonographic industry recorded 4.8 million vinyl albums sold in the UK in 2020, marking a decade of growth, which globally eclipsed $1 billion for the first time. In the United States, LPs and extended play shipments increased 23.6%, while compact disc shipments fell 33% between 2019 and 2020, according to the RIAA, an industry group. Joining us this week to offer a manufacturer's perspective on this growth and the challenges it presents is Michael Greg Thomas, the Chief Operating Officer at Kindercore Records in Athens, Georgia. We put the manufacturer at the center of our thinking for this conversation, discussing what materials go into producing records, how they are acquired, and the pain points that exist in the manufacturing. By drilling into the supply chain and non-linear process involved in transforming these raw materials and their components, a richer understanding of why production estimates are lengthy is attainable. We also discuss popular narratives about purchasing power of major record labels to bump small releases in production queues, the Amazon effect, use of recycled plastic, and how independents can use their size and nimbleness to their advantage in getting their records pressed on favorable timelines. I'd like to note that Michael speaks openly about the industry during this conversation and that his opinions are his, not necessarily those of Kindercore Records. If you'd like to explore more RIAA and BPI reports, such as those I used in reporting the aforementioned statistics, check out the hyperlinked content in the episode notes. Let's dive and get heavy. Michael, welcome to Heavy Hops. It's a pleasure having you on the show. Hey, how are you doing? Thank you for having me. We want to really sort of put the supply chain around the production of vinyl records at the forefront of this conversation. But first, let's get to know you for a second and get to know how you kind of got into this world of production of vinyl records. So tell us who uh, Michael Thomas is and how you uh, sort of ended up in the position that you are as an operating officer of this uh, vinyl manufacturer. Yeah, I mean, my accent's a little bit muddy, but originally I'm, I was born in the north of England in a place called Stoke-on-Trent. And um, I've been an expat in the, the US for, I think, going on seven or eight years now. I started out my career always in music, but as a recording artist. I was signed around the age of 16 and continued to be a recording and touring artist in the UK until just around 21, 22 and that was when there was kind of this sea change towards streaming becoming the, the main viable way of consuming music and 
the the label we were signed to kind of went through some really turbulent times. We were predominantly a physical label. Vinyl was you know what we put out uh, even back then. And so at that point, I I moved into I was a label manager for a short time, putting out archival re-releases of rare soul R and B music. And it was um, around five or six years ago that as a label, it was taking over 30 weeks to get vinyl records produced. And I'd done some work in Europe and some work in the US and really started to dig in. And that was the start of me getting involved in the vinyl record manufacturing industry. I worked for a brief time for a startup in California where we were developing press technology and trying to iterate on how records were made. And I came over to Kindercore here in Athens, Georgia, towards the end of last year, kind of middle of the pandemic. And now I'm managing our operations for all intents and purposes on a day-to-day basis and managing 30 people. And that's kind of how I ended up here. I never expected to be running a pressing plant, but I'm very glad that I am and work with a great team of staff. Just so we can have a little bit of uh, scale, who are some of the clients that your company works with? And tell us a little bit about how you've seen business grow over the last few years. I don't really think it's an industry secret that vinyl records uh, (laughs) are quite the popular uh, commodity globally and that both the British Phonographic Institute and here in America have uh, reported tremendous growth in the sales of vinyl records. Yeah, our customer demographics vary pretty greatly. We work with a heck of a lot of independent artists, so people that are looking to press anything from 100 to 300 records. Um, that is our bread and butter at Kindercore. Moving up to what I would say is kind of your your large indies, the likes of Merge Records, we do a lot of work with. Big Crown in New York, we do a lot of work with. And then right on up to your major label subsidiaries. So we've worked a lot in the past year with Capital. Uh, we worked on the Paul McCartney record and really recently Halsey. So we have this really widespread and we try and treat all those you know, equally. Uh, the volumes may be different, but we, we, we do try and treat everyone the same. It's definitely more difficult working on larger projects, but we work the whole gamut. And do you see uh, labels at all different spectrum wanting more product overall and each individual release getting more vinyl treatment and different types of vinyl treatment? Yeah, so we have labels that have been a vinyl label, let's say, for the past decade. Their volumes and depth uh, on projects, let's say they were Run, doing runs of a thousand or two thousand, those are going up to seven thousand, up to ten thousand. And then what's really exciting for me is is seeing labels that never really had vinyl as part of their product mix. We work with some '90s hip hop labels, and they're getting into vinyl and and starting to migrate a lot of those titles into print. It's a lot of educating new customers and a lot of helping existing customers scale to larger run sizes and getting stuff into more pockets and stores and all that good stuff. Fantastic. Well, let's sort of look at the supply chain and the purpose of our of where we're heading here for listeners is that we really want to put the manufacturer sort of at the center of our thinking. And so we're going to begin by sort of looking at the suppliers and the products that you, uh, Michael, are bringing in and that you sort of observe within the industry as well from your uh, experience. And so uh, in order to sort of get at the heart of all of this, 
you know, we can't not look at PVC and we can't not look at the basics of what goes into uh, producing these things. Mm -hmm. So what are you bringing in uh, just for the lay person that may not understand the entire process? What products do you need to bring in in order to manufacture uh, records outside of the master recording? At all times, we have a really large inventory, as you can imagine, of raw material, PVC. As you would expect, probably most of what we press is black records, you know, that classic black vinyl record. But an increasing trend in vinyl record pressing is color variants, different colors of vinyl records. And so um, we have to, at all times, have a pretty robust stock of a large uh, number of different colors. We get all of that compound in on a weekly basis. Um, we try and keep on hand enough for the coming at least six weeks to two months. Um, so the volumes are really quite incredible. We get vinyl in a granulated form. So it comes in two different types. One is we call them lentils, namely because it looks like lentils. Um, and the other are barrels. And those kind of look like spaghetti if you chopped it up into you know one millimeter pieces. And so we have to store all that in big containers and bags. And also as an organization, I think most pressing plants, a large part of our mission is to reuse and recycle as much as possible that as we press records, we're trying to take any material that is not going into the final pressed record and we regrind that up so it can be reused. Thermal plastics can be used over and over again as so long as you keep them clean. And there's a storage element to that too. Over the pandemic, I think every industry has seen uh, issues with obtaining uh, any type of raw material. And even now we're also seeing sort of logistical issues in terms of uh, shipping containers being in China and then dislocation based on demand of where we can get things from. Are those things that you've experienced in terms of the acquisition of PVC? Because I assume that you may not be getting PVC from your backyard. No, we have a, a really close relationship with our supplier. It's not something where we work with a bunch of different suppliers because the application is so specific. And we have kind of a continuous cycle of dialogue with them about how the compounds are responding to our using them and different pressing temperatures. Different colorations of vinyl respond differently when you press them. They have kind of different viscosities, different melt points, and ultimately that impacts what the record sounds like. So we're working regularly with them. Um, there have been times, perhaps in the last 18 months, where getting exactly the right compound has been a challenge, but pretty rare. Honestly, we've had a really good run with getting compound in and being dynamic when we have to be. I speak regularly with our supplier. A large issue that they have is understanding what's coming up. And they liken it of this idea of a compressed spring. You know, there is a lot of, I was in San Pedro a couple of weeks ago at the port of Los Angeles. And you see all these ships that are out there parked because they cannot get in and get unloaded just with the sheer volume that's coming in and the lack of drivers to get stuff out of there. And so our PVC supplier talks regularly about what we have coming up, how much can we forecast, what data can we give them on what's coming up so that they can start importing because that process takes so long. They just want to get stuff in the warehouse so that when we need it, they can get it. But we're not kind of ordering directly and then waiting for it to come. They're trying to predict ahead of time what we're going to need. Another thing that helps us be dynamic is we can either get these custom color records out of the bag or we can arrive at colors through 
mixology, mixing different compounds, same way as you would with a paintbrush. It's been a pinch point, and there have been times where projects have been delayed a few weeks because of compound, but um, it's one of many, many difficulties we face, for sure. And actually, one thing that I, I wanted to talk to you about is kind of this tolerance stack. Like, it's the sum of the parts that really leads to major issues, and PVC is not perfect, but it's not the hair on fire problem and, and maybe none of them are it's the summation of those problems is the is the problem absolutely so can you sort of explain what a tolerance stack is and what are some of those factors that are components of the tolerance uh, stack that you're referring to yeah so tolerance stack to my understanding is traditionally an idea that applies to manufacturing of of a product you know you take a pen and there is maybe 10 different parts that goes into that ballpoint pen. And the core of the manufacturing of that, you have drawings for each of those parts. And maybe some parts are made by one fabricator and some parts by another. And the tolerance stack is how much those parts can be slightly too big, slightly too small, and still function together as a whole. And if all of the tolerance stack is going in one direction, that can either benefit or be to the disadvantage of what the finished good is. And so that cumulative effect, I think, applies to vinyl record pressing. Our finished product is the sum of lots of different parts. We have a lacquer master. We have the electroforming of the stampers. We have the pressing, which we do here in-house. We have the print parts that are shipped in, that are sourced from other manufacturers. And we're kind of bringing them all into land in one place. A lot of the sourcing of these parts doesn't happen in parallel. It's a linear, you know, we can't plate a lacquer until the lacquer is completed. We can't press a test pressing until the stamper is here. And so you get this cumulative effect. Well, it might only take you a week longer to get that lacquer. But if it's also a week longer for a stamper, also a week longer for a test pressing, that's where your stack becomes difficult. So that's a point that we don't see a lot in the press, I feel. And is also sometimes a difficult one to express to customers in a way that's useful. But we are sure trying, I can tell you that. And you mentioned uh, you know, something that I think is pretty understandable, but also a big concern in the supply chain, and that is uh, labor in terms of the drivers and the ability to get the goods from Port of Los Angeles to Georgia in your case. Is that that's something that you're seeing across all of not just the shipping of the raw materials, but some of the uh, semi-finished items that you're buying that are a part of this tolerance stack? Yeah, we, we see it all over the place. So, you know, I was digging into this and various economists with various projections, but we see these numbers of the US being short on drivers and the numbers of 60,000 and 100,000 it's hard to understand, well, d does that affect me on a day-to-day -day basis? You know, my FedEx driver still turns up on a day-to-day -day basis, but it's usually what we don't see. It's usually stuff getting from a port to a depot, adding a day here, adding a day there. We're also seeing a lot of new drivers, people that have just taken a job, and we're seeing the effects of that, you know, in the sense that some of the goods that we're getting off these trucks are damaged so it doesn't matter that they got here on time, the way they're being loaded, and I guess the haste that is present at all levels of logistics at the minute, we're getting a lot more breakages in those shipments. And again, it's not usually major write home about problems. There's not very many times where I've had to call a representative from a 
freight company or from FedEx and say, this is three weeks late. It's that every single step is a few days late. That's definitely hurt us on, I remember record store day uh, last year. I think nine out of 10 you know, projects that we were doing for record store day as a ratio, we managed to get into land, but everything was up to the wire. We were pressing on weekends and holidays and overnight. Just when we thought we'd got completed goods done in time, and we knew that the shipping depot was a one-day ship from us. And the last thing we were thinking was that we were going to have a problem with our freight. And we scheduled our freight pickup. We told the distributor it was going to be there the next day. And I came into work the next morning after a lot of late nights, and I saw those records still sat by the loading dock because they hadn't picked them up. And so it missed its date. Uh, and that's a real tough one when you you satisfy so many of the steps and you fall short at that point. But these are the margins that we're, we're dealing with. It's days here and days there. So the issues are you know, systematic in a way of it's not just the short haul issues of your FedEx or your, uh, or your Amazon or the truck that's going to a local depot and then the product is going further. But it's actually also in the long haul in terms of the truck that goes from California to Georgia. Yeah, it seems to be at every single level from the ships that come in to the trains that go across the country to the driver that's bringing it from a local depot to uh, here. And we get a little bit of a snapshot. Our shipping manager here came over from FedEx and you know we get kind of an inside shot to that. And yeah, it's not drastic, but it's it's incremental and it's it's constant and it's still an issue. And when you look at demand still going up, we are growing to rise to these occasions, but when the target continues to move also, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a constant challenge. Do you feel as though there may be ways for import substitution to occur in the sense of maybe there are opportunities to buy these things closer to home because shipping may have additional sort of issues like you were referring to? Or are you still experiencing issues? I mean, one that may cost more than materials from further away where labor is cheaper, yeah. but also the last mile is still the last mile. The, the specialization of our industry is probably one of the toughest parts to overcome. I think a, a good segue on this is to talk about print and the specificity of what print items we, we use in record pressing. A good example would be our center labels, that small paper uh, circle. Every record has two of them, one on either side. In 2011, in the US, there was around 15 pressing plants, people that had kind of weathered the downtick of vinyl and was still here. And at that time, I think there was pretty much one external vendor. A lot of people had some internal processes, but there was one, maybe two vendors that were providing center labels to the industry. Fast forward to now, we're 25 to 30 pressing plants in the US, and the number of those vendors hasn't changed so much. Internally, right now, we're working with a local Georgia printer 20 minutes away and starting that R&D cycle of... Um, can we get center labels made locally? There are some tricks and tips to it. There are very specific stock and specific size, and you need to invest in the dyes to cut paper down to that size. And I think that over the coming year, we're, we're going to see a lot more of that. I know for a fact that if I could make center labels locally, I would always choose to do that. I just think it's good to support local businesses. And I think that if we can close down the amount that we're driving and shipping stuff across the planet, all, all the better. The other side is, is record jackets. They're a pretty idiosyncratic print item. 
Uh, there's not many other products, I think, that we slide into a piece of print in that dimension. And so the record pressing industry in North America is predominantly served by a Canadian company, and they do a really stellar job, but they're doing a really stellar job for everybody. And that product has to get shipped from Canada to these pressing plants. As a record pressing community, we're pretty tight-knit. We're always talking about where can we expand our options, not to replace, but if we could just find some redundancy. But the levels of investment you're looking at in order for a print company to make a jacket is not insignificant. They need to be able to die cut large format pieces of printed card. They need to be able to fold and glue in an automated way. It's not like there's one kind of record jacket. We have single pocket, we have gatefold, trifold, and then some of this really custom work. I don't want to not mention there's a, there's a couple of great shops in Los Angeles that are also making record jackets, but in scale, nowhere close to where we're getting 90% of our print in the US. So these are the areas that we're going to get these incremental wins, I think, over time of developing products and really trying to support innovation in the space. Innovation and the word vinyl rarely go together, but I think the more we try and drive competition and more people entering the market, the more we're going to um, get some incremental wins and really bolster the supply chain and domestic product, right? Yeah, I, I think that anytime something comes back in fashion or something that involves quite a bit of older equipment and a specific type of know-how, uh, there's always room for innovation when you're bringing it up into contemporary times and certainly to meet the specific demands of customers, right? Because people want more than ever certain types of customization and the consumer expectation is, you know, very different from the 1970s. One thing I, I think is really important for the, you know, if we want to be optimistic about the industry is that record pressing as an industry is a pretty incredible concentration of outliers, of people that <laughs> didn't, you know, didn't necessarily go with the trend of things and said, I really believe in this particular physical format of music media. So much so that I'm going to put this much money into infrastructure to, to make records. And so if you're looking for a group of people to solve problems, the record pressing industry is a great cohort of people that continue to solve problems. The situation we're encountering at the moment is, are we solving them as quickly as they are appearing? I think that there is, a, we're turning the tide with it. You're listening to Heavy Hops. We'll have more from Michael Greg Thomas in a minute. There are a few things happening in the world of Heavy Hops and Scorch Tundra at the moment I want to share. You can find tickets to Scorch Tundra present shows, such as Yellow Eyes and Immortal Bird at the Empty Bottle on November 5th at scorchedtundra.com slash tickets. We've also created a crowdfunding source for all things Heavy Hops and Scorch Tundra. If you love what we do, want to support us, find the donate link in the episode notes and give what you'd like. Giving any amount will grant you access to our growing Discord community and an opportunity to contribute to making this show and Scorched Tundra content the best it can be. Please also consider sharing this episode with the nerds in your life, rating us, and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, which helps others find us. Thanks for this moment, and back to our conversation with Michael Gregg Thomas. And I do want to talk about some of the silver lining in, in all of this. But I do want to bring the focus into kind of things that are happening for you as the manufacturer and the sort of pain points that come about in what you do. Obviously, we were discussing some of the issues of products in and then on top of that, 
some of the individual sorts of competencies and the lack of contingency that you have in suppliers to buy different specific items from. That's one of the challenges for sure. Are there also challenges in terms of the labor and the specialized knowledge that goes into the manufacturing of these vinyl records? Yeah, for sure. I mean, where to begin? So I will frame this at Kindercore, which is where I can best speak to. At Kindercore, the average number of records we are pressing in a month has tripled in the last year. Imagine being in a situation where the same sort of roster of staff had to grow to do three times what they were doing in the space of one short year. It's a really incredible achievement and one that I try to remind ourselves of on as frequent a basis as possible. But the training and the labor side is a complex problem. We have different roles in a pressing plant. Let's take the role of a record pressing technician, for instance. So we work on viral tech machines. They are one of the new record pressing machine manufacturers. And they are tremendously busy making machines for new plants, existing plants. I think that if you placed an order today, you'd get a machine next November. And when they put that machine on the ground, they give a really robust training to the people that are present in the business at that point in time. At Kindercore, that was the founders. So the founders received this first-hand knowledge from a people that had a lot of experience pressing records, making machines. And then from there, every time you bring someone in, firstly, you've got to bed in your own knowledge with real-world application. You've got to press records. You've got to press one good record, then 10, then 100, and then you know, get to this point where every day you just come in and press records till you leave that are good quality. Well, then when you have to scale, how do you successfully impart all of that knowledge as quickly as possible onto somebody so that they can press their first good record, their 10th good record, their 100th. And um, what we've found to be really successful is bringing people in from uh, the service industry, people that work in kitchens, that have worked on a line, that have worked with equipment that they've had to learn how to use and worked in a high-pressure environment. And what we tend to do is have people shadow you know, you're never going to be able to train somebody all of the faults that a press will throw, all of the issues that might come up. But you can make it known that when those problems come up, we'll solve them together. I joke, I say, you know, we should be like the Cub Scouts and have badges here for when you've tackled and cleared a fault uh, or solved a problem in record pressing. Because that is the, the way that we learn here is when the problem occurs, we help you solve it. And then for the next time, you know. And I think that that cycle for a pressing technician to go from you know being a, a line chef to being a record pressing technician that I would sign off on to turn up and work on their own is about three months. As we grow, that is a factor. With the packaging side of it, it's not dissimilar in the sense that our assembly staff, it's not just a straightforward factory job. You're not just putting a record in a sleeve. There is a care and consideration that goes in for, this is a phonographic product. This is... It has to look good, feel good, and it has to sound good. There's not a lot of you know, manufactured goods that have those variables. So training people how to listen to a record, we do listen to records from every single job at every single step of the process to be able to identify issues, but then also the visual aspect of understanding what imperfections aesthetically are okay, because they happen. Not every record is immaculate. This is manufacturing. But we do our best to make every single record as good as it possibly can be. So again, I would say at the QC and assembly level, it's three months. What is great at the moment is as a business, we are you know coming up on four years old. 
And so we're starting to build that knowledge base and people can shadow someone. It doesn't matter how many new staff, we could double our new staff tomorrow and everyone would have an experienced person to stand by shoulder to shoulder and pass that torch. But in the early days, I think it was rough. It was tough. That is a, like a very uh, interesting perspective in the sense that you're looking for people that essentially are very good with their hands and they have uh, also knowledge of learning a new piece of equipment and that all of these like transferable skills can go into uh, music. And presumably, if you're hiring people from the service and back of house industry, they probably all like music too. So it's a fun and interesting sort of opportunity for them. Are you learning from people that come from different industries as well? At Kindercore, I think we're very fortunate in the town of Athens. There are a lot of people here that work in music, play music, love music. It's a music town. You know, Nine out of 10 people here at Kindercore are in a band playing music, recording music, releasing music. And so that's kind of the first layer of experience that you need here is to care, to care about what is going out of the door. And then after that, to go to your second point, are we learning from different skill sets? 100%. There is a lot to be said for bringing in people from different previous disciplines and industries and applying them. You know, a car mechanic is not going to be intimidated by a lot of moving parts and problem solving step by step. We have a press operator that was previously an electrician. And one invaluable skill set to have when you are maintaining these machines with relatively complex circuit boards and, and computers, just the infrastructure of the factory generally. You know, we have a chiller, we have a boiler, we have a shrink wrap machine. I think that the more attitudes you have towards problem solving in an environment like this, the more to you and more strings to your bow. So we've talked about some of the pain points as far as that you experience as a manufacturer when it comes to your labor. And then now there's also the fact that there's more demand than what you're able to supply, even though you've trained up a lot of people and you're producing many more records than you had in the previous year. And likely this isn't the first year of growth in terms of your output. And so what are some of the other issues that come from that uh, sort of disparity in the demand and supply that you see as the manufacturer? I will make no secret that one of our biggest problems as a small to medium-sized business, that's what we are, with 30, 33, I think now, in total people, is the most obvious impact has been the volume of orders. You know, vinyl record industry is a cottage industry, a niche. It's not like there are companies like Salesforce or QuickBooks creating vinyl record manufacturing industry-specific applications, <laughs> you know. And every single order has, you know, seven or eight different parts that need to be ordered, brought in, tested, approved. And the project management side of things, the operations side of things has been incredibly challenging. Before you even talk about the externalities of how long it takes for things to get made and get here, it's an incredible amount of pressure for one person to be under in the office at a pressing plant frequently People are upset about communication, levels of communication. As we've grown, we always prided ourselves on our ability to call someone when there's something wrong and be dynamic and fix it. But when the number of those people have tripled, it becomes immensely difficult. And then when the number of problems per person increases, you're at a breaking point. That has been a real challenge in the office, at keeping people's mental health as a priority, keeping people's general level of happiness to come in and do this job on a day-to-day -day basis when the stakes are so high, so many customers' dates are being pushed and broken and 
it's impacting their businesses. You know, we're dealing with a lot of people who rely on getting records to market to make their rent. So that side has been incredibly challenging. I think I probably speak for a lot of manufacturers on that, that we would love to know the best way, the silver bullet of communicating these problems in an effective way, but it, I haven't found it yet. Another issue is, I think I touched on earlier, record pressing is not linear. We have to assemble these parts with different timelines. So when someone comes to us as a customer, they say, what's your turn time right now? I think right now we're quoting upwards of seven, eight months. But at one point a year ago, it would have, we would have said three months. And so let's use that three months as the lens for this conversation. They'd come in and we would say our turn time is three months. And by that, what we mean is to get to a test pressing at that point in time, it was taking usually about four to five weeks. And then assuming the test pressing sounded good, you'd approve that in the following week. And from that point, we were about six weeks from being able to give you a viable date producing that record on a machine. And that gave us enough wiggle room for you to submit your artwork a little bit after you'd submitted your audio for that artwork to go through pre-press and proof approvals and ultimately to land at our door. Now, what happened was is COVID was an explosion of demand for people pressing records. There was a lag to it for sure. But I would say late spring 2020, the number of people that were coming in and saying, how long is your turn time? We said three months. Um, okay, great. Here's my order. Here's my audio. And then that time to get test pressings done used to be three weeks to get stampers here. I've seen 12 weeks before you even get a test pressing. And then whilst that was ballooning, the number of jobs vying for a production slot was also ballooning. So that time of six weeks was pushing out to three months. And that was for a lot of reasons, the depth of people's orders, the size of them, they were saying, well, you know, I ordered a thousand, but now I want 2000. It was happening a lot. And I think that by the time most pressing plants had realized just how ballooned all of a sudden their, you know, their order queue had become, it was too late to tell everyone and to really be a reliable actor and let people know why and how things happened. And that's a story here across a lot of pressing plants. It's not one that any of us wake up in the morning and are happy about. It's really hard to confront how quickly that explosion of our schedules happened. And really, we, resp we, we just continue to respond to that. We continue to try and be as communicative as possible. But that's been a huge challenge. You don't want to disappoint your customers. No. I a common phrase people will hear from me I mean, as the business manager, I'm not necessarily working on projects on a day-to-day -day basis. It's usually... I'll have a conversation with a client to address perhaps some major issues or problems that are going with the project. And sometimes I have to remind folks, no one in a pressing plant gets up in the morning and, and goes to work looking forward to disappointing somebody. And it's taken an incredible toll on people's mental health here because when success is damage limitation, you know, what do you have to strive for? You know you're going to bust through people's dates because the dates are unrealistic. We're just talking about how badly we're busting through people's dates. Obviously, we're going through a reset of expectations that the new orders are coming in a hearing seven, eight months. We have the badge of the last year to have changed all these processes and to try to improve those processes so that we can better manage expectations. But it's hard. It's definitely hard. And it's something that I you know, remind staff, as long as we're healthy and happy, that's priority number one. And after that, let's see if we can help. 
Let's look at some of the media anecdotes about the delay in releases and talk a little bit about now that we've sort of set up a little bit of context with a little more scrutiny. One of the sort of larger narratives is that Record Store Day releases and bulk re-releases of a catalog from major labels colors, all the treatment can become prioritized because of the volume. And again, you don't want to disappoint a customer. You can obviously speak from your perspective, but you're welcome to speculate on how a larger printer would consider this dynamic too. Prioritization is always a problematic idea. And there are two sort of uh, milestones in a project that I think because they often get mixed up, can cause contention. So one is, I think uh, I mentioned before, when you place your order, we're seeing it take this long to get stuff made. But ultimately, we can't give you a date until you have print approvals and test pressing approvals. Now, when that date rolls around, if you have taken a long time to approve your test pressings, or maybe you've gone through a couple rounds of test pressing approvals because there was a tick on a stamper or any reason, any number of reasons. There are lots of people that could have approved their test pressings in that time. And the mode of operation at pressing plants is, okay, parts are approved, let's get you in the schedule. That has been the source of a lot of disappointment and a lot of people saying, hey, you've bumped me. I've been bumped by somebody. And I'm like, I, I don't think that's what's happened. What's happened is that these folks have maybe submitted their order around the same time or maybe after. And we have to book production based off approved parts. Now, we are not a small operation, but we're not the biggest. And I think we'll make a million records next year, but there are pressing plants out there making many millions of records a year. And when you compound that issue I've just alluded to with sheer volume of clients and projects going through, it's going to be the laser-focused major label or independent label that's entire living is made off of record store day, they're not going to miss that date. They're not going to wait on their test pressing. That can cause a lot of this inflation in the production schedule. I think that the best way to proceed if you're an artist putting your project in right now is don't even think about your release date if this is a vinyl release until you've got an approval on a test pressing and you're like, okay, I know that I can get a production run made now. And that'll set you up for some success. There's still going to be things that can happen that can delay you a couple of weeks, but you'll be in the ballpark at that point. Is it a practice in the industry for major labels to receive priority in pressing, or is it down to the more specific dynamics that you sort of described? Because a big paycheck for a project is a big paycheck, and you're in an industry of cash flow. Yeah, it happens not just at a major label. I think... We sensationalize that it's the majors that do this, but you know, a member of my staff the other day had received an email that for a 500 record pressing, someone wanted to spend $10,000 to get it when they wanted to get it. And um, I know a lot of pressing plants that would say, yeah, that'll do it. That will do it. That will get you in the press queue. Now, major labels have a lot of ways to incentivize people to produce their goods. And I don't doubt that they're capable of incentivizing pressing plants to work to their agenda. We have an order that is 100,000 records or pay a dollar more a unit, that kind of stuff. So obviously happened at some point in time. I think it's the business owner's discretion how they manage their output and production. You know, I think that a code of ethics is always important when you're running a business. But if you think that you could press something that would make you a lot of money, that would help you pay your staff more, that would help you pay down some bills and not impact a bunch of people, you're probably going to do that as a business owner. I, I don't think I would overly scrutinize somebody for that. But 
if you're doing that knowing it's going to hurt a lot of existing customers that have been made promises, then obviously that's a problematic behavior. And I don't know that that's exactly what happens, but I, I know there's a lot of people that feel that way. We've seen sort of an Amazon effect impact retailers and consumers' expectations in some way about how things are going to come to them, how quickly it's going to get to them. And that impacts retailers of all sizes. Now, you are kind of a step behind the retailer as the one giving them the goods that they are going to sell. But do you see that sort of trickle into your part of the supply chain? Yeah, absolutely. I think that in the last decade, never before has it been easier to buy something and get it without necessarily leaving your house, right? And I think that perhaps there is a lack of understanding on a societal level about how we get things. That applies to food. It applies to how far food has traveled to get to your supermarket. It applies to consumer goods and under what kind of conditions your sneakers are being made. And it definitely applies to vial. I don't know what we can do to educate. I think we're doing it right now. You know, These are the moments that I always want to seize to talk about this. But there is definitely a consumer culture of, I asked for this and I want it. And you're a business and you should be able to give me that. You know, there's part of me that says, yes, yes, that is correct. And the other side of it is, is being responsible for a large roster of staff. You have to remember what you owe to people. What do I owe my staff every day? I owe them a safe working environment and normal work-life balance. I owe my vendors of the same, you know, some decorum, to, some space to work out their supply chain issues. But at the same time, to my customer, I owe some kind of reasonable service. And that's been a line to tread. And I think that maybe as a people, we could arrive at, at some better expectations around what it takes to get something in an ethical and responsible way. And if we could reset some of those expectations, um, I think we'd all just be happier as consumers and as people that make things for consumers. Um, but I don't think that that's probably a realistic expectation, but I think that the more we have these conversations, the, the more that, that might start to happen. Absolutely. I think that inconvenience on the part of the consumers is actually like a really great educational tool because then there's an opportunity after the frustration cycle goes out, then they learn to live with what they thought of as inconvenience. And then ultimately, there's an opportunity for a new norm to exist once they experience that using air quotes, inconvenience over yeah. in a lot of different facets of how, in this case, we're talking about obtaining consumer packaged goods. You know, I think that uh, hopefully this is the first step in getting people to understand that these are products that are quite special and take a lot of time and effort and have a lot of moving parts into. But it, it does take some difficulty. The obtaining of knowledge doesn't come easy when we're learning things. So no, that's right. That's right. I think when we talk about the sensationalized narrative in the news, one of the things that perpetuates it is sometimes it's easier to agree with it. Um, because if a customer is coming to us and saying, hey, I know you're effed because of COVID or because of a lack of plant fire, that's a simpler answer than, than <laughs> the conversation you or I are having over perhaps an hour and a cup of coffee. And so it's sometimes easier to confirm the narrative and that this is the exception and not the rule. What I think is healthier is that we help people understand that the rule is that things take time and our externalities will impact how long that is. And as long as we work with the intention to 
get things to you as soon as possible and manage your expectations, then we're good. Then we're good. I think that the record pressing industry is working with those intentions. Let's look at some silver linings in our conversation here. One of the things that I think about quite a bit, whether it comes to the production of vinyl records or also the production of beer, is sort of the environmental impact of those kinds of, uh, of activities. In the case of records, you're using a lot of color. There's a lot of transport in the goods. And in beer, there's a lot of use of water and cleaning materials and a huge amount of environmental impact. And so there's been quite a bit of innovation in terms of the reusable plastics and specifically sort of like eco-wax. And so I'm curious if products like that, you were also talking about adapting your practices to recycle plastic as well and pressing so long as it was clean. What are some of the sort of like innovations as pertaining to like the environmental impacts that you think can be present in the future? It's a really interesting space as it pertains to record pressing. Historically, when we've looked at sustainability as it applies to record pressing, as it applies to our raw materials, usually we'll go up the chain of working with biochemists and research centers and centers of knowledge, and they'll say, well, the application is almost not big enough to innovate in. You know, For us to create a bioplastic that would work with your machines, this industry is just not a big enough cap for us to really invest in. And we do receive those raw materials in a pretty idiosyncratic way, those pellets. But what we're seeing is that as the industry grows and as consumer pressure and knowledge mounts, that we can start to reevaluate those assumptions. Maybe this industry is big enough to have these conversations. That's really exciting. And the more we can drive understanding around vinyl record pressing and what goes into it, the more that I think we can drive solutions in alternatives. We are producing a petrochemical good. Once upon a time it had lead in it, now it doesn't. Guess why it doesn't have lead in it? Because we understood that lead is a bad thing to have in a consumer product and we drove change. So now that vinyl record pressing is becoming a prevalent medium and tool for the music industry again, we've seen that the music industry is a great space of innovation, that consumers are engaged. And I'm delighted to see that we have companies that are looking at bioplastics for record pressing. We have companies that are looking at how we produce print and using recycled stocks in the print that we produce for, for record pressing. We have labels that are you know, using carbon offsets. Obviously, you can have a conversation about the authenticity of carbon offsets, but it's happening. It's a dialogue that we're having. That's an exciting space for me and and one that I definitely spend a good chunk of my time thinking about and uh, advancing conversations in. And I think we'll see more over the coming year. I temper that with, we see, uh, I don't know if you saw the story probably a couple of years ago about ocean plastics being used to produce a record. That story is a double-edged sword. It's someone showing that they could make a record using ocean plastics. But what perhaps wasn't shown was the sheer amount of resource that went into cleaning, granulating, sifting through, acquiring that ocean plastic to make what was effectively, I don't want to say clickbait, but it was clickbait. But I love that that is advancing the conversation of, well, why can't we use ocean plastics in record pressing? And why isn't that happening? So I'm incredibly optimistic about sustainability. The other thing is that it's part of a really interesting discussion not so long ago about vinyl versus digital. And that conversation piece, talking about the sustainability of vinyl, has made us look at digital as an alternative. And actually, how sustainable is that? How 
sustainable RR practices around hosting content on this huge volume of servers that require electricity. They generate heat. They are made using materials that are finite. I think that there is a healthy level of optimism that having these conversations is going to drive change for me. That's an interesting point about when we think of streaming, we think of magical files in the air. We don't think of where these things are actually housed in the environmental impact that servers have and they're actually like insanely massive and wasteful in their own way. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of couch what I'm saying in a place of, I never want to be the person that says, well, what I'm doing is okay because what they're doing is worse. I think I delight in us having a conversation about the problems of each and maybe those conversations driving change in both. And that's exciting. Another sort of weight to the discussion about purchasing power of different size labels is a notion of smaller labels co-oping purchases to balance the demands of larger labels and their purchasing power, so to speak. We've touched on that a little bit in this conversation already in that it isn't just a one way or another sort of scenario. There's actually a lot more that goes into the dynamics of and the order in which they are produced. But do you think that there is value in small labels co-oping to have larger purchasing power at the manufacturing level? 100%. When I got into this industry, I've always spent a lot of time talking to people that have been in it for a long time. And they talk about times at which record labels built pressing plants just for one record release. <laughs> one of the legends I've heard is Elton John, Candle in the Wind, that record created a pressing plant that was built just to do that and then, you know, solve the parts. The adage that I take from that is that the more that record labels organize and engage in this industry and how it operates and the financing, the capitalization of it, the better the results are going to be. We are very lucky here at Kindercore. We have super engaged customers that are not just saying, hey, I need 80,000 records next year. They're saying, because I need 80,000 records next year, what can we do to secure capacity? What can we do to put capacity on the ground? That's great. I think that the more of that that can happen, the more that we can organize, the more that we can be strategic, the better it's going to turn out for all of us. There's going to be a lag. There's going to be you know, a year here to make a machine. And even getting a chiller right now takes four months because the computer chip that goes in it is back-ordered. But if we start organizing now for next year and the year after, I think indie labels have a real opportunity to make vinyl a growth space for them to really monetize their output. And another component to the competition discussion is the political dimension to mm -hmm. we were discussing before we started about Biden's executive order to promote competition, which was stated earlier this year. Do you feel as though there's a role for anti-competitive policy that can trickle down into even the sphere that you're in? Because in reality, we've seen massive consolidation on the part of larger record labels, whether they be major or majors acquiring indies and the sort of uh, shifting dynamics that occur as a result of large companies becoming even larger and the sum of the smaller companies being a sum of many, many, much smaller companies. I can say that as an industry, there's always this conflict of, I hope there's more people around next year to press records than this year 
so that we grow the category, we grow the medium. Uh, at the same time, there is constantly, you know, the sea change that has been happening for a long time of very large companies coming in and putting presses on the ground and buying pressing plants and driving down costs or availing capacity in ways that small pressing plants like ourselves cannot. And would I say it's anti-competitive? I don't know. I, I just know that at this stage where the problem seems to be getting records pressed and into the hands of fans. We as a business want to make sure that people are getting paid for the work that they do. And we're seeing the cost of raw materials inflate and we don't want that to impact our staff at the same time. We don't want it to adversely impact the people that buy stuff from us. So I think that it's a loaded question. I hope for growth in this space. I hope that growth is done with competition in mind. And competition is what ultimately made the industry what it is today. Like we had a bunch of old incumbent pressing plants that, you know, growth wasn't necessarily a major item on their agenda. They've they've been around for a long time. These smaller pressing plants came in and seeded capacity in the US and proved that we could start up and we could get to making records. That's been really healthy for the development of product and the colors that we offer and the service that we offer and the way that we do things, I think that should be encouraged. And I think we should just be aware of kind of the macros of big companies coming in and gobbling everything up whilst no one's really looking because I think it will create an, a lack of innovation and, and it will affirm a status quo that isn't necessarily that great. In closing, I'm kind of curious as to what you would like to impart on consumers as obviously we want people to be patient across the board, but what would you kind of want to share with listeners as sort of a takeaway? I would say, you know, I encourage any any consumer of any good, not just final records to imagine what it is for to, to make it. And who is making it, the people behind these things, the faces that go into this process. And I think that human nature is overwhelmingly positive. We want positive outcomes for ourselves and for others. And we all wake up in the morning and go to work wanting to do our best. If something is taking a little bit longer, if maybe something is wrong with something that you've bought or ordered, just know that the person at the other end is hoping for a positive outcome. And if we engage each other in a way that is kind and understanding and gives people space to respond in a productive way, we should try and take that path as much as possible. We're all doing our best here. We all want it to be better. And sometimes a bit of patience goes a long way. Well said. Well, Michael, it was a pleasure having you on Heavy Hops. Thanks for joining us. A real pleasure. Thanks for having me on.